0: And I remember asking Archbishop Tutu, how can I ever repay you? And he said, do good in the world and pay it forward.
1: Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side this show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight today's guest is summer ali who is an entrepreneur and a lawyer and currently research professor of political science and law and co-chair of the vanderbilt project on unity and american democracy she's also a former white house fellow who is president and ceo of millions of conversations a nonprofit organization that aims to unite Americans around common values for a shared future by fostering dialogue among those who hold different opinions, views, or beliefs. We had a good conversation about her career and her current efforts to bring the country together. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Summer Ali of Millions of Conversations. Summer, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Sure. Okay. Well, my name is Summer Ali. I am an American, Palestinian, Syrian, Muslim, Southern woman who grew up in rural Tennessee, Um, became a lawyer by trade after going to Vanderbilt and majoring in political science, And became an international lawyer, interested in how we better legal systems to represent the people that are most affected and impacted by them, Um, which led me into a career that had multiple interdisciplinary approaches um, from human rights law to corporate law to national security law and economic development work that I did both in and out of government. Worked in the White House and the Obama administration, as a White House fellow, worked in the state government of Tennessee for Governor Haslam as assistant commissioner for international affairs, went on and continued in the private practice of law. And that led me to where I am now, which is um, leading a nonprofit organization called Millions of Conversations and co-chairing a project on unity in American democracy at Vanderbilt University, where I'm on faculty at the law school in the political science department. And I'm researching a number of different subjects, including how we invest in nonviolent movements that lead to systematic change in peaceful ways rather than than violent ways, and how we realize positive compromise over negative compromise.
1: Well, you are one of those people, I've talked to a fair number, who've packed a lot into the first part of life. It's almost intimidating when, when I talk to somebody who's done so much.
0: Well, I felt that about you. I mean that, reading your bio.
1: That's kind of you. I'm really always interested in how people construct a career. That's one of the things, you know, like, because, you know, I talked to a lot of people in, you know, college age for whom that's very mysterious and they get extremely intimidated by somebody who in their thirties, forties, or fifties has done a lot of stuff. You mentioned all these many steps, but what were the key moments along the way to take you down the path that you followed. Why do you go to college and major in political science? Why do you go to law school? Take me through the, some of the key moments and, and why you made the choices that you did and how much of that was like planning and how much of that was happenstance or luck or all the other things that, that make up life.
0: It's a good question. I don't know if anybody fully knows the answer because it's always a combination of things. I was very blessed to have really great mentors, starting with my parents, really. And I'm not just saying that because that's a good answer. I've always been a, a student of life, have loved to learn, have loved to experience, have wanted to exist fully And my father had cancer when I was 11 years old. And we did not know if he, we did not think actually he would survive. He was given a 2% chance to live. And we thought he was dying. And as I was watching my father dying, thankfully he survived. But before my eyes at 11 years old, I realized that life is really short. And he was in his early 50s, 51 years old at the time. And I remember thinking to myself, you just never know. And so um, you really do have to pack a lot in and, and you never know. And so I learned that lesson very early on. I grew up bicultural going between the United States and the Middle East. I saw the tensions between Palestinians and Israelis and I wondered how can it be different? And what does a different reality look like of where there is an existence that includes everybody and that people look forward to and that people believe in and that they derive hope from. And what is my place in that? What can my place be in that? What what is you know, always wondering how can we get along? How do we find belonging? And I grew up in that small town, the only Muslim family in that small town, went to a Baptist school, went to a Catholic school, went to then a public school, and and belonging was on my mind and thinking about that um, and feeling that experience and and knowing what it felt like when the town came around my family um, and rallied around my family when my dad had cancer and the church is praying for us and not being upset about that, but rather embracing that. And I think that it's that cross-cultural experience that led me to wanting to invest my time in doing my part to make my community, which includes this world, a better place and figuring out what that means exactly. And so I actually started college Pre-med, my parents are doctors, my sister's a doctor, my grandfather is a doctor, my aunt was a doctor. And so it's just like, that's what we do. We're, we're a family of, of, of healers. And then my mother told me, do your future patients a favor and do not become a doctor. And she said, I don't think you have it in you actually. And you're not disciplined enough in the profession of medicine to, I just don't think that suits your personality. And I think you should explore different paths. That was tough advice from my mom. And I was upset by it at the time, but she was right. I mean, I was flocking to my political science classes. I was loving my crisis diplomacy class, really thinking about those different moments diplomatically that made a difference and led to a more peaceful future, ended violence. Those were the things that were on my mind. And that was what got me up in the morning. And I was like, you know what, I need to do what gets me up in the morning, not what I think should get me up in the morning. So let me go explore that that path. And through that, I realized that law was a path for me. I could develop a skill and understand what I considered to be one of the greatest constitutional documents, a quasi-sacred text, to really spend years studying it and learning it. And then just by luck, I was introduced to Archbishop Tutu through his daughter who mentored me during college and law school and had the opportunity to go live with the archbishop and his wife in Soweto, South Africa. Wait a
1: second on that, because that that doesn't just happen. How did you know, was it Tutu's daughter? Was she just randomly in your life or was there some reason? Because I didn't run into... Archbishop Desmond Tutu's daughter. I mean, what happened there? What's the story?
0: Well, she was in Nashville and she was doing work at um, Tennessee State University and also helping out at Fisk University. And I was student body president at the time. Ah, you were and, student
1: body president at the time, yes.
0: Right, and and we had um, a number of hate crimes and crises on campus at Vanderbilt. And she came in and helped us, um, including... With the name change of Confederate Memorial Hall, me and my, my colleague and close friend Marissa Schramm co-wrote the resolution to change the name of Confederate Memorial Hall to drop the name Confederate and to call the hall Memorial Hall. That ignited a number of just basically divisions on campus um, around this issue. I was depicted as the devil in the student newspaper. Um, and... hate crimes increased across campus uh, before the resolution and and then after the resolution too. She came in and helped us with that and really showed us and modeled leadership um, along with a number of other mentors at the time. And then when I went to law school, I was walking across campus. This is the thing. I was walking across campus. My first month of law school to a salsa dancing class with some friends at the gymnasium and passed the Schulman center where Naomi was speaking. And I decided to pop in and say hello. And she invited me to lunch the next week. And, um, we got together. She was asking me why I went to law school and I was telling her and she said, you should go study and, and spend time with my father. And can you send me your resume? And from there forward, um, that's what happened. And, and, and he and, uh, mama Tutu picked me up at the airport were just, just changed my life. Um, changed my life.
1: I think it's really instructive how that's just such an example of the combination of luck and being prepared for luck. The fact that you or making efforts to do something to make change the fact that you were student body president the fact that you had sought her out all of these things come together and then you take advantage of this opportunity right by actually going over there a lot of people might be like ah no i'm not gonna go to another country or you know i'm not going to pursue this relationship it's too scary or one thing i wanted to ask you just a little earlier which is you said faced by seeing things like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that you thought about how can we get along. Some people might respond to that by saying, how can I win this for my side? That's true in in American politics too, as it gets more polarized. Some people, a lot of people I talk to feel like the other side is so bad that the only way to deal with it right now is just like to win, like to win for the Democrats over the Republicans and, and similarly on the other side versus what you seem to be trying to do is bringing people together. Why do you think that's your reflex?
0: I don't think we actually win through zero sum. And I actually think humanity wins when we do build consensus around common values for a shared future of where we build community together as human beings that are sharing um, community together. I see a lot of man-made divisions. I see a lot of, of unhealthy power sharing arrangements Um, that really don't benefit the majority of people living under those rules and those norms. And I see what it does to both the perpetrator and the victim. And I see what fear does to people. And again, going back to that point of we have one life. How are we living it? How are we spending it? How are we working to realize our god-given potential if you believe in god if you don't our our um you know higher calling whatever you want to call it but that that one chance at realizing what your ultimate life experience is most of the people that i would meet growing up and talking to and understanding were like how can we continue to live in conflict <laughs> And, you know, I mean, I think the other thing, too, is how are you even framing the narrative? It's, it's always been framed my entire lifetime as Israeli versus Palestinian, and then rethinking that framing, because actually, I believe that the majority of Palestinians and the majority of Israelis actually share the same norms, actually want the same things. And so in terms of that being equal rights, in terms of living a life that's fearless, in terms of living in a place where you're respected, where you're, where you're able to live your full identity, where you're able to progress forward, evolve with time, with understandings, with learnings, and et cetera, for jobs, for family gatherings, and, and to maintain tradition. I mean, I think about the Fiddler on the Roof song tradition. It was one of the first songs I played for my newborn baby. My mother and I played for her. I remember growing up in Waverly. We'd go to the Tennessee Performing Arts Center every time Fiddler on the Roof came to the Tennessee Performing Arts Center because we related to it. We relate to that story.
1: So, as you're progressing through law school and going to South Africa and kind of growing as a person and and Building skills. Where, where at that time are you pointing yourself? What are you thinking about as like longer term goals, and how are you pursuing them?
0: Well, first of, all, I'm beginning to believe that my dreams can become reality because I'm meeting such giants like Archbishop Tutu, um, staying on the same street where Nelson Mandela, Vilakazi Street, where Nelson Mandela stayed and during his active years as an activist. Um, and the house of, of where he was was his home when he was arrested, reading Long Walk to Freedom and that time period too, with a, a copy that was handed to me by Archbishop Tutu, and also studying and working under Justice Edwin Cameron, who um, just retired on the Constitutional Court of South Africa, who also um, mentored me and um, was living and is living with HIV, survived AIDS, and um, is an openly gay man who is the only public official on the continent of Africa who has admitted his HIV status. And, And seeing the courage and feeling the courage that these giants exhibited inspired me. And I remember asking Archbishop Tutu, how can I ever repay you? And he said, do good in the world and pay it forward. And, and it was, and I was like, you know, just thinking, you know, at the time, and I continue to think about that. How do I maximize my ability to do that? And so the journey continued, and, and I should also note that one of the things that Naomi had told me when she said I should go spend time in South Africa was, you un- you grew up bicultural, you understand the Middle East, you understand the United States, you need to go somewhere that makes you feel uncomfortable, you need to go somewhere that you don't know. That's when you become a real international lawyer. And I remember Edwin Cameron, Judge Cameron, also telling me that I had to learn how to drive on the opposite end of the road with a stick shift, because you should be able to be able to drop down anywhere in the world and have that capability. And this. This was before you had navigation systems, so I also had to learn how to read a a map and and with names of streets that were hard for me um, and difficult for me, and it was challenging. But I did it, and I did it in part because I do think that these fields, for a number of reasons, but also they require discipline. Going back to that point, too, of discipline and commitment, and also knowing that you'll fail along the way. For a while, I feared failure, and, I, and it took me time to realize that I actually ha- I had a fear of failure, but then to just sort of say, you know what? I'm human, and I'm going to fail, and if I just fold every time I fail because I'm embarrassed or I'm ashamed or whatever, then what good does that do anybody?
1: Was there a moment or a time that you, that you felt that transition from feeling that fear, or was that gradual, or is it still with you?
0: I think it's something I'm always managing because I think of how I was brought up. It's something that for me, at least I get up every morning and I gauge and I just sort of say, how am I feeling today? Um, and if I'm overwhelmed by fear, I manage through it. I say, Why, what is it I'm fearing? And, th- and then admitting it, not trying to make a failure into a success. If that makes sense, trying not trying to mask it, like rather trying to understand and learn what did I what did I learn from this, so I can stop, so I don't keep doing the same thing wrong. But I also think it's like I think about my my mission and what it is I'm trying to do, and if I stopped, and if I just stopped, and that that's more that's not an option really for me. I have to face the reality. It could be sometimes of where you. Um, you, you fail in a negotiation, you you, you, know, you fail in in a reconciliation moment. I was a third-party mediator to the Syrian conflict for several years, and there were moments of where I felt that we failed, and that was hard to swallow.
1: Yeah, it's a mess over there. You came back and joined a law firm. Was, were, was it through that law firm that you were working on this conflict?
0: Yeah, when I came, after I left the government. Um, but the first law firm I was with was Hogan Lovells, uh, that I was with full time, um, was, was Hogan Lovells, where I was a corporate lawyer.
1: Yeah. And that where you were when the white house fellow offer came or.
0: Yes, that's exactly right. You you applied
1: for, is that something you apply for, right?
0: That is something you applied for. Yeah. That's, um, it's, it's about a seven month process.
1: Why did you do that? (laughs) What, what was, what were you seeking there?
0: Um, it's a great question. I mean, a lot of things were going on at one time. I was realizing that I just had this—what would you want to call it? But like, I'm um, just commitment to change, um, and to wanting to, to 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 better systems, and that that was hard to do as a corporate lawyer, of where my clients were people that um, weren't motivated by that. And so recognizing that we were motivated by different things, I just had to, again, truth, right? Reconciling with your own truth and say, that's just truth. And so then thinking about what's the right pathway for me to um, affect change. And and I felt like, again, back to my thing about learning, I was like, well, I don't really, I can't, I don't really understand. I've studied government, but I've never been in government. And then one of the one of the people that I was working for, the partners at a law firm said, I remember we were getting we were getting diapers for her baby at like midnight in Dubai. And she said, "Um, you should apply for the White House Fellowship. I thought I didn't even know what the White House Fellowship was. And she goes, I just really think that that my one of my best friends did this, Melissa Goldstein, and I think that you would love it. And so I went home and I researched it, and I was like, "There's no way I'm getting this," but I'll learn a lot about myself through the process, and I'll meet interesting people. So, so why not? And at the same time, I should also mention I was living between the U.S. and the Middle East at the time um, for this firm, and I started off in the D.C. office, which is where the headquarters are, and then we were opening up this office in the United Arab Emirates. I was spending a lot of time over there, um, and I was, quite frankly. It was my first time spending that extended amount of time, not in in a democracy. And it gave me a newfound appreciation for democracy and democratic principles. And I heard Obama's speech in Cairo. I felt this call to action. And that's, that's that's where I landed.
1: I assume you articulated that call to action in your application and sort of sold them on you as somebody who wanted to make a difference and could make a difference with them
0: actually, my memo was actually about truth and reconciliation in the Middle East. Um, and and I talked a lot about why I became a lawyer and about the, the future of community relations, communal relations on the, the local, national, global level.
1: There must have been a, a kind of a batch of White House fellows. What did you observe about sort of the class you came in with and what they were like as people generally?
0: Well, they became like family to me. I speak to one of my White House fellows, colleagues on a daily basis. One of them, Colonel, retired Colonel Jason Dempsey and I started millions of conversations together along with Rabia Ahmed. I was the youngest in the class. I loved walking into a room for the first time with people who weren't all lawyers. Um, even though I'm proud to be a lawyer and of the profession. like I just felt like, this, I love interdisciplinary engagements. Um, I found it fascinating, one of our classmates c- became this, um, the um, commander of SEAL Team Six. He was a deputy commander at the time. There was Jason, who was an army ranger. There was Rachel Thornton, who was a pediatrician from Hopkins. Um, and there was Jeff Prescott, who was a China expert. He's now the deputy ambassador to the United Nations. And it was these people who were also really smart and really good. And and I, I felt this um kinship motivated by ideas too.
1: In terms of the things you did, what's what was the most memorable to you of the things that you got a chance to do while in the White House?
0: I think one of the things was not being intimidated by the office, because I think that's important for a we the people moment. Um, it might sound again idealistic. Um, but I do think that's important. normalizing those engagements with people who are people. One of the things that's because of what because of my work, that's etched in my in my memory is how we responded to the Arab Spring, the way that process worked. seeing people who are who who are in powerful positions but are yet still limited, and understanding those limits. And seeing how that balance works, and then and really, I appreciated working closely with um, both Secretary Napolitano and Deputy Secretary Lute of Homeland Security, um, two women who are who are powerful leaders in their own right and in different ways, and and really um, watching them in action.
1: When you say you saw people who were limited, even these powerful people, do you mean that they couldn't see things that you could see because of your background? What do you mean by? That? What were you trying to say
0: well i mean because that's in part how democracy works and also we are a superpower but we're still sharing the world um so you might want to go in a particular direction you might want that direction to go but then there are limitations
1: Limit by limited by the by the facts on the ground and the people and the and the entanglements and the commitments and the inertia. yeah it's it's, yeah. it's complex yeah
0: it's it's very complex it's
1: hard to make change it, in, especially yes. in, in these sort of rigid conflicts, seemingly rigid conflicts. Yeah,
0: Obama struggled with that. President Obama struggled with that. That reality. There's the way that there's the, the, we there's the way you want things to be, and then there's the way they are. What is your way of moving from where they are to where you believe they should be?
1: It seems like quite a shift to come back to Tennessee, as you talked about at the beginning of this, and to work in a state government for a different party that runs Tennessee. What are your observations about that, you know, moving from federal to state government and having a different type of role?
0: It surprised a lot of people. I remember my sister calling me at the time because it happened so fast and saying, what are you doing?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> a lot of people were asking, what are you doing?
1: Yeah. What were you doing? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was I was doing many things at once. And and so first off I was keeping my word. So in my White House Fellows application, I said that my intent was always to build community and I explained that part of my community was Tennessee. And in reading the the original intent of the White House Fellowship, it really is actually for you to go back to your community and take those skill sets and build. And also, because I was at Homeland Security for part of my fellowship experience, I was seeing the data coming in firsthand with the polarizing nature that our country was experiencing and the, the fractured state and Breitbart did a hit piece on me at the time. I had been targeted at the, as well. And the Tea Party was rising.
1: These are badges of honor, by the way. If Breitbart goes after you, you're doing something right. But go ahead.
0: <laughs> it, it gave me this, under, this, this, this realization of we the people are losing our country. And that's not to say that we're losing our country to the Tea Party. It means we're losing each other and I was seeing the toxic atmosphere and the underlying pieces behind the polarization and the partisanship. Um, And I was like thinking, you know, going back to that piece of doing something about it, I was like, I need to move back home. And then on the economic development side, I kept seeing um, to what was le- what what was in, in medicine? You, you know, you have the surgeons, the, the, and then you have the internists. Um, I was seeing the crisis, and I was like, I don't want to just be there when the crisis has happened. I want to prevent the crisis from happening. And I think part of that is working on social justice issues, and part of it is also working on economic development. And with that lens of moving back, I was asked um, to help develop an international strategy for the state of Tennessee. Tennessee was still in a recession, and rural America was severely in a state of recession, and it still is. Um, and I thought, you know, we can do something about this, and I can help. Yes, the governor is a Republican. And I sat down with him, though, after a couple of weeks on the job, and we really connected, too. And we're now co-chairing this new project together on unity and American democracy. Um, and, and we've had similar experiences in life and different experiences in life.
1: We have such a urge right now to put people into boxes and make sure we know what side they're on. It must be a little confusing for people that you were both in the Obama White House and in the Tennessee State House, but maybe it also serves you in in kind of credibility in this area of tr- trying to build bridges. How have you found the putting those two things together, how have people responded to that and how has that? helped shape your path forward?
0: Well, I mean, again, being idealistic for a moment, because uh, um, I'm a realist and an idealist at the same time. It goes back to we, the people, it goes for the people. I see people who need government to work for them. And I see a role and a responsibility that I can help play to play a role in making government work better for people. Um, and so so I come at it from that angle. And I also, though, over the years have realized um, what's fueling entrepreneurial politicians. That goes back to the sort of the solution that I've been working on, which is going directly to the people and working directly with the people so they aren't the pawns in a politician's game. And and so that's not to say that all politicians are playing a game. I don't believe that. But I do think that some politicians are playing a game and it's a dangerous one. And if anything, that this has come back to for me, it's we need to talk about principles. We need to talk about values. We need to talk about what our democratic principles are and we need to work to protecting those democratic principles.
1: What's the founding story for Millions of Conversations?
0: Yeah. So millions of conversations, really, the idea started when I was working. Well, one could say some people, some of my friends say it started in law school. Um, But I would say it probably concretely started when I was attacked in the state government and called a terrorist and was receiving death threats. Some so serious that the FBI was investigating someone for attempted murder against me. And I did not know if I would make it out alive. And it was at those moments that I realized that what I had been professionally working to disrupt with regards to these negative norms that were authorizing environments for cruelty might take my life. And so then What is the mechanism to develop to thwart that effort and understanding as you, I think you'll appreciate how disinformation and misinformation were working and how I was being demonized um, through disinformation and misinformation efforts, which were using online um, tools to do that and social media and, and seeing these fake websites popping up about me um, and my family, uh, I was thinking to myself, we're in trouble. Not just me, not just, I mean, not just my story. It's like our democracy is in trouble. And so what is the way to counter this? And I get it a lot of thought. I thought, if I survive this, I want to work to developing a system and an ecosystem of where we successfully counter what I now call the hate industrial complex. And so I I started doing due diligence around understanding who's behind the hate industrial complex, who's profiting from the hate industrial complex, who's using the hate industrial complex, and, and how much money is being pumped into it. And then I found that fear was the basis, uh, was the fuel that was fueling the complex. Um, And fear built on demonization of the other about people like me. And so we're seeing this now increasingly in an alarming way um, against Asian Americans. It's seeing that, understanding it, this negative cycle, and then saying, okay, how we replace it is through a positive norm-setting cycle that leads to sustainable peace and unity, which starts with listening. And then, and I can take you through those steps if you want. And through that theory of change, Millions of conversations was born. And it started off actually initially to see if this methodology could work on countering Islamophobia. And we found it it was working, and it did in multiple instances and in multiple ways. And then through market demand, we started getting asked to use that methodology on other issues. And we started doing that, um, including on partisanship and polarization rooted in partisanship in America. And we started seeing like on a case-by-case basis that it was working. And so there was born. Millions of conversations.
1: You mentioned your co founders, but how did you get together with them? And what, yeah. what is this? You, you formed a nonprofit. Talk about some of the nitty gritty of actually creating an institution to do this.
0: Um, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. I didn't realize at the time that I had to learn a completely new industry. Um, nonprofit work in America is an industry. And that was step one that I did not realize. It is different than the private sector. It's it's different than government. And including as a as a minority woman starting something not within an institution, um, as well as a minority woman, um, and and in the South and in the heartland. And I say that because um, a lot of funding for th- this type of work is arguably on the on the coasts. Um, and so initially there was a lot of. Um, Need to build capacity around convincing a number of um, high net worth individuals and foundations to invest in a national organization headquartered in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and so, because normally what you'll see are East Coast organizations or like coast or West Coast organizations with satellite offices in Nashville, not the reverse. That's actually for me an important point. And so. How with my co-founders, Jason Dempsey and I had been talking about this because he was at Fort Campbell when I was being attacked and called a terrorist and an enemy of the state. He was getting ready to go to Afghanistan. He was just in disbelief that this was happening as I was being called a terrorist. He was being celebrated for going and fighting people, for, for fighting terrorists. And so he's like, how do people, our neighbors here think I'm going to fight you? And, and this is all upside down and thinking that they've just got this friend versus enemy framework and you're the enemy and I'm the hero. And yeah.
1: What had you done to trigger people?
0: (laughs) Existed. I first became a target because around this whole birther movement and Obama, remember there were all these conspiracy theories that Obama was Muslim. And so I got caught in that fury against Obama.
1: I mean, they just noticed that you're Muslim.
0: Well, I said Summer Ali, and that um, my they said I was a part of the Muslim Brotherhood, and that there is no such thing as a Muslim American because it's an oxymoron, and that Muslims are part of the Muslim Brotherhood whether they know it or not.
1: So they just started making stuff up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's frustrating
0: and that I was trying to impose Sharia law and take down America, and that I had infiltrated the federal government, I'd infiltrated the Democratic Party, and the conspiracy was that I was now infiltrating the state government and the Republican Party. Now, these are the conspiracy theories, which have led to the January 6th insurrection. And people... I don't think are fully, some people are, and some people are not yet fully connecting the evolution of these conspiracy theories.
1: Well, there's a lot of overlap among the practitioners and the receivers of those pieces of misinformation. It's connected to the anti-vaxxers and it's a kind of a festering underworld of fake information and
0: it is which, is, which is eroding the trust between each, us as citizens and neighbors, between us people and democracy and government. And so this is why I, with millions of conversations and my conversations with Jason too, we we're like, okay, how do we build consensus around a social contract rooted in democratic principles that we know work and move us forward and progress us forward as a society? Um, and, and Rabia Ahmed was one of, um, a number of, um, what, what was the main, was one of the main people who came to me from the Muslim community, um, right after the Muslim ban and said, we need to do something and counter, um, the politicization of the, of our national security apparatus and immigration is part of our national security apparatus.
1: I've talked to now five or six or seven different founders of groups that have in one form or fashion been working on a similar problem of trying to get people to talk to each other, to using different methodologies to speak across divides. And all of them testify that they can have positive effects by doing this.
0: It's not enough.
1: That's where I was leading was like, I can see how conversation in small groups in bigger groups, there's some people trying to do it more at scale online, can all be helpful, but we're facing sort of Trumpian level mass uh, efforts to break us apart and set us against each other. So how, how do we contend with with the level and scale of the problem?
0: Well, that's why millions of conversations, the conversation's the door. It's the first step. It's not the only step. And it's not the last step. And and we're clear about that. That's why we, we say our seven-step process to sustainable peace or unity. Choose your word. Some people are triggered by the word unity. Some people are triggered by the word peace. And I don't mean that to be flippant. I'm not trying to say that flippantly either. Seriously, choose which one you feel more called towards. Um, but it starts with listening in a conversation. We're listening. We're having a conversation right now. We're listening to each other. I'm listening to you. You're listening to me, et cetera. Um, that's one of the reasons why we didn't call it millions of voices because right now it feels like everybody's on send. And so listening is the first step. The second step is humanizing. As you listen, you begin to humanize as you humanize. Most people naturally tend to empathize what would it be like to walk in that person's shoes from there empathy you start to um you start to explore common values common ground and then from there there's a step of where you need to commit to a shared future and this is a, this is where it's important to commit um and we've seen this in other work we've done in other parts of the world that commitment to a shared future is is key because that's where you restore agency and it's not imposed I don't have to share community with you. I'm choosing to. And then the next step is truth and reconciliation, which has a storytelling component. And that's an individual and a communal experience of facing the truth and reconciling with it. We often say, don't do that first. It can be traumatic. Um, And you have to have said, it's worth it because I want to share a future with you. And I want to go through that process. There's a big pop culture component to that as well, by the way. And then do you realize sustainable peace and unity? And there's a digital piece to this, which is not just one-on-one conversations. It's not just one-on-one engagements. We have a number of programs that we've tested, and some have failed, some have worked. And the ones that have worked that we found over the past couple of years include one – Engaging with people, we, we, hacking algorithms that are fear-induced algorithms that are targeting people with toxic messages about the other, targeting and working and communicating and connecting with those same people who are sympathetic and, and vulnerable to toxic messaging with positive norm-setting messages. And that requires an advertising budget, by the way. We've studied how the uh, digital media is working. And just the digital marketplace, it's very important point because you can have people come together and then they go back and they're on Facebook, they're on Instagram, they're on Twitter, and they're getting hit with these messages that are counter to what you just worked on in person. So there's that digital piece to it. The next thing is what we call our 3142 program, which stands for the number of counties in America. And that's getting people together for a two-year commitment to work on an effort to problem-solve what they have decided is a problem within their community, whether it be rural hospital closings, whether it be um, vaccination um, levels, immunization levels down, whether it be a mortality rate that's decreasing, whether it be an opioid problem, whatever that might be, but also then connecting the grass tops resources and efforts with the grassroots because there's a disconnect there too. Anyway, I can go on and on about all of that just to say a simple conversation is not enough.
1: What's the democracy initiative that you're working on with the with the governor
0: and John Meacham? So John Meacham, myself, and, and Governor Haslam, and that is an effort to um, through to, to realize how we work with policymakers and traditional media um, and the traditional media, what I will call the you know establishment. on on understanding both case studies in American history and best practices that we know work moving forward to build consensus around democratic principles that will lead us to unity. And so unity around democratic principles, which are articulated in the Declaration of Independence and the process of which has been um, designed through our Constitution.
1: Boy, that's a lot you got going on with also trying to teach and work at the university in various capacities. Do you feel like you've found the right set of things for yourself? Are you still searching?
0: No, I feel like I found,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I feel like I'm found. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's good. Uh, well, I, you know, I wish you a ton of luck with it. Is there a question that I should have asked that I didn't about what you're up to?
0: what advice I'm seeking from the general public. One of the things that's constantly on my mind is the best way to cut through the noise and and the different ideas that people are having around that. Because I think a lot of people are thinking about what we're talking about today in one way or another. A
1: lot of people are, I know that. And I'm I'm certain that I've only uncovered a tiny bit of, of it. Because the country's in danger of splitting apart, frankly, and some people are working on, on for their own interests doing that to us.
0: The, the fact of the matter is we are witnessing and experiencing um, and under threat. The thing is, we, the people are like, we're under threat. We, the threat we're under is of authoritarianism, of slipping into a state of an authoritarian existence.
1: It's shocking and scary.
0: So that's the other thing, too. I would say no one organization is going to solve this on its own, no one institution. We have to work together, and we have to be firm. And this is the other thing, too. People will talk about bipartisanship. We have to be firm about when we talk about bipartisanship It is and compromise. We're not compromising our principles or our democratic values. And we have to draw that line and clearly define what that means and build consensus around that meaning. Otherwise, we're at risk of enabling authoritarianism.
1: Well, the the problem that I feel for a lot of people trying to navigate that in this moment is that one party is taken over by an authoritarian figure at the moment, and the other one is fighting against it. And so how do you not slip into full partisanship in that moment?
0: I think one of the ways, which I say this a lot, and maybe we can do this in another session, but is defining authoritarianism, showing not just telling, and giving people room to evolve. Because I think that a lot of people don't want to be stigmatized. It takes a lot to face your truth. It takes a lot to to, to say, you know.
1: And There's lots of degrees in which you are in the wrong. Some pe- somebody could be just facilitating some bill that's in the wrong direction. Someone else could be working, you know, whether you know what's has to do with voting rights or something. You could be partially bad and and redeemable, right? I don't know how to, how you would define it, but it's it's pretty complicated out there. Uh, I I feel the press of of the amount of time we've talked and the amount of battery left on my computer. Okay. So I would like to talk more to you if you're open to it down the road. Um, because I feel like we've only just kind of got going. But is there anything else you want to say at this moment?
0: Thank you for your time.
1: (laughs) Thank you. That was Summer Ali. Summer is at millionsofconversations.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with The Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.